There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. On Holyrood Day, the gallant Hotspur there, young Harry Percy, and brave Archibald, that ever-valiant and approved Scott, at Holmenden met, where they did spend a sad and bloody hour. As by discharge of their artillery and shape of likelihood, the news was told, for he that brought them, in the very heat and pride of their contention, did take horse, uncertain of the issue anyway. Here is a dear, a true industrious friend, Sir Walter Blunt, new lighted from his horse, stained with the variation of each soil betwixt that Holmden and this seat of ours, and he hath brought us smooth and welcome news. Of prisoners Hotspur took, Mordake, Earl of Fife, and eldest son to Beaton Douglas, and the Earl of Athol, of Murray, Angus, and Menteith. And is not this an honourable spoil? A gallant prize? Ha, cousin, is it not? In faith, it is a conquest for a prince to boast of. Yea, there thou makest me sad, and makes me sin in envy that my lord Northumberland should be the father to so blessed a son, a son who is the theme of honour's tongue, amongst a grove the very straightest plant, who is sweet fortune's minion and her pride. Whilst I, by looking on the praise of him, see riot and dishonour stain the brow of my young Harry. Hello and welcome to The Plays the Thing. You were just listening to King Henry IV from the opening act, opening scene of William Shakespeare's Henry IV Part One. Yay! There thou makest me sad, and makest my sin in envy, that my lord Northumberland should be the father so blessed a son. That's Henry the Fourth talking about not his son, but Northumberland's son, Hotspur. And right there we have kind of like the opening setup for a conflict between Hotspur and King Henry the Fourth's son. And we're going to meet all these characters in just a second. Let me introduce myself. My name is Tim McIntosh. And I am Heidi White. And we are so glad that you joined us for this opening act of Henry IV, Part One. Heidi, welcome back to the show. And this is one of your favorites. 
This I, is one of Shakespeare's plays so that you most excited. love. I'm like uh, twitching with excitement right now. This is my favorite play. This is my this favorite is your play. favorite Shakespeare play. I well, I love the entire tetralogy. I'm crazy about these plays, all four of them, and this is my favorite. So I I just can't. I'm so excited to be here. I have so much to say. You're going to have to probably tone me down a little bit, Tim. That'll be your job. I'm not going to do that. Not at all. Okay, Uh-oh. you just used a big word. A big word, tetralogy. I did. What I is that? What what what's this tetralogy that you're talking about, Heidi? Well, it definitely proves my genius as a human <laughs> being and a scholar, <laughs> so that I know that word. Um, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> a tetralogy is a series of four plays, and this is the second out of four uh, in a row of, of one of. Shakespeare's history play series. What's cool about this tetralogy is that each play stands alone and each play has its own uh, core of genius. Um, and, uh, and yet they all fit together too. So they tell one unfolding story, Richard II deposed, which we've already, you and I already did this, a series yes. on Richard II on the plays, the thing, and it ends with Henry V, uh, his, and his glorious reign. And it tells the story, uh, from one King to the next, to the next, very important so the, time in English history. The full tetralogy is, as Heidi's already said, Richard II, which is kind of the prequel to the play that we're discussing today. And a magnificent it's, masterpiece on its own. And a masterpiece. That's that's the one that I was very unfamiliar with. And then during the course of our podcast on Richard II, I just fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. Um, under your influence, I might add. After Richard II comes this play, Henry IV, Part One, then Henry V, Henry IV, Part Two, and then it concludes with... Henry V. So the the real time history behind this play begins in 1402, roughly 200 years before Shakespeare's time. So this play was written around 1595. So kind of like maybe think five years before Hamlet and the great Shakespearean tragedies is when this uh, play falls. So, Heidi, like Richard II, this play opens with a huge, let's call it like a history dump. Hmm. Shakespeare just dumps a huge a history on his, right? And if someone is approaching this play for the first time, that opening scene, which we just heard a snippet of, is tough sledding, like Richard II, which is also kind of like a big history dump. Now, before we like start um, being critical of Shakespeare for all this exposition, I think that it's important to remember that his first audience listening to this history dump is actually going to know a lot of this history. This is like this is just a refresher course about the history of the house of Lancaster, they already know this history really well, right? So um, what feels really foreign and strange to us, to them would have been like hearing stories about George Washington and the Delaware River or the Revolutionary War and things like that. So, but that being said, it's still kind of like a little bit strange to our ears. So 
let me give a brief overview of what happens in an opening scene. Opening scene is Henry IV, the king of England, speaking with his counselors. There have been all sorts of civil wars racking England, and Henry is like looking to get everybody thinking about something other than the civil wars. So what does he do? He's like, you know what? It's time for a crusade. We're going to go on a military expedition to Jerusalem And there we're going to fight the Islamic people who currently occupy Jerusalem, and we're going to try to take it back for Christianity. Okay, in comes the Earl of Westmoreland. He's got terrible news. There's this guy named Mortimer, Edmund Mortimer. He's a military leader. He has lost a battle to a bunch of guerrilla fighters from Wales. These guerrilla fighters are Welsh they are led by this kind of mysterious figure, Owain Gladwer. And I I mean, Heidi, am I anywhere close to the right pronunciation? Owain Gladwer? Ugh, roughly. I think that's as close as we're going to get. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's where, incidentally, totally unrelated and obscure. That's where yeah. we get our name Owen. So. Is it then, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like that's Gowan, really interesting. you know, like it's spelled the same Owen. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it should be, it probably should be pronounced something more like Owen, but like we would say Gowan. But anyway, it doesn't matter. That's just a little fun fact. That's a great fun fact. On the opposite border. So, so there's war happening on the Welsh border. And then on the opposite border, there's another fight happening. That fight is between a guy named Harry Percy, a, a British military leader, who's also named, and we will refer to him primarily as Hotspur. He's like one of the best. He's just defeated Archibald. And just to make it more confusing, Archibald is often referred to as Douglas. He's the leader of a huge band of Scottish rebels. So rebels on the Scottish border, rebels on the Welsh border, Hotspur emerges as our champion. Okay, but here is like the problem that emerges really early in the play. Hotspur is this great military victor, and King Henry IV loves what he's done, but Hotspur is acting weird. He sends only one of his prisoners, a guy named Mordake, to the king, and he keeps the rest of the prisoners. This is not standard procedure, Heidi. This is not what he should have done. So in this opening meeting with Westmoreland and the King, they're kind of like, what is going on with Hotspur? This feels like rebellion. And we bet that Hotspur is being put up to this rebellious act by the Earl of Worcester. Henry IV, the King, is not happy, so he demands that Hotspur come and explain himself, okay? And Henry's really disappointed. He's like, okay, the crusade is going to have to wait. i got to put that on pause. So also in this opening scene is, you heard my little allusion to this, King Henry IV is frustrated at his son, Prince Harry, Prince Harry is idle. He is not living up to his kind of like princely position. And his idleness is basically the result of him hanging out with a very famous 
in my opinion, wonderful, wonderful literary character. Heidi, do you want to tell us who it is? No, I want you to because you love him. I do love <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to work through that a little bit? No, I don't mean we will. We will. But I want you to, you need to get to say his name. You get to introduce. And he is, I mean, one of the most amazing comic characters in literary history. Say his name. Falstaff. Sir John Falstaff. Sir John Falstaff. He is. You are getting way, you, you can't wait to talk about Falstaff, but we're not there I can't wait to talk about him. Okay. I just want to say this. Those of you who are listening to the sister broadcast, the sister podcast, a confederacy of dunces. Our main character, Ignatius J. Riley, is oftentimes likened to Falstaff. Ignatius is kind of like a modern day Falstaff. But Heidi, you're right. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's back up. I would love to talk about the three primary characters who like really shine in this play. Those three characters are, in my opinion, Hotspur, Hal, and Falstaff. So Heidi, I wonder if you'd be willing to introduce us, just kind of give us your opening impressions of Prince Hal, son of King Henry IV, and Hotspur. Sure, absolutely. Prince Hal is the main character of the play. Uh, the play is titled Henry IV Part One. Uh, but what Shakespeare does with these history plays is at is a little different from what we might expect. We might expect this play to be called, like if you were to write this play, you might call it like Prince Hal. You'd probably call it Sir John Falstaff, but you ought to call it Prince Hal. Prince Hal. Uh, yeah. Uh, but that Shakespeare called it King Henry the Fourth, even though King Henry the Fourth is frankly a minor character. No, oh, minor is too strong of a word. He's not minor, but he's not the main character. Yeah. Uh, our main character is Prince Hal. And so Shakespeare names the plays after whoever is on the throne for the majority of the play. Uh, but the main conflict and the main character is Prince Hal. And the main conflict of the play is, is this. I would, I'm going to put a name on the theme of this. The making of a king. The education of a king. What we have with Prince Hal is a dissolute, prodigal young man, as we learn in scene one, the way his father is speaking about him. Uh, and it's true. Prince Hal, he's fun-loving. He gets drunk a lot. He carouses. Uh, he's out on the town in London and all the worst parts of London, you know, creating all kinds of chaos uh, uh, with his buddy, Sir John Falstaff, uh, who is accused by the king of corrupting the youth um, uh, by leading his son astray. Uh, but Prince Hal is, uh, he's my, like, hands down by a mile, my favorite character in all of Shakespeare. So I love Prince Hal. I have such a great affection for him. So I'm going to say that up front and say, clearly, I am biased towards Prince Hal. I think he's wonderful. I'm a little, I am like in love with him. I want to like crawl into him, this and save him from himself. So can I, can I ask a question yeah, about please. that? Do you love him for this play or do you love him for this play, the next play and Henry V? It's the entire trajectory of how he goes from a dissolute young prodigal into the glorious king. Uh, and it's always in him, um, but it has to be drawn out. Uh, so Prince Hal, what... Uh, 
I'm going to say just a little bit more about him, and then we'll talk about Hotspur. Um, so what we know about Prince Hal at this point in Act One, uh, we learn at first from his father, who's disappointed in him and compares him to Hotspur. He says, I wish that I had a son like Hotspur. Uh, because Hotspur is honorable. Hotspur is a great warrior. He's winning battles. He is following his father uh, into glory uh, and is every inch an English lord. My son, however, is you know out uh, having drunken brawls and uh, body times with with Falstaff. Uh, And so the king is deeply disappointed in his son and very afraid of succession, which becomes a major part of the story. And I don't want to get sidetracked into the issue of succession. We'll talk about that later. Um, But that that's, so the first thing we learn about Prince Hal is that his father's disappointed in him. Uh, and then the second thing that we learn about Prince Hal uh, comes from himself, in which he comes on stage with Falstaff the morning after a night of debauchery. And they wake up hungover and they start uh, having this you know, back and forth conversation that, like many conversations between Hal and Falstaff, is uh, jolly on the surface, but there's an undercurrent of sadness and pathos mm. that goes on. Like a real, you know, the real statements that they're making, they pretend to be joking, but are they, right? Like these kinds of things that add so much depth and pathos uh, to their relationship and to each of them individually as characters. Um, so we do see that he is living a very debauched life. He is a prodigal son. Um, the third thing that we learn about Hal is at the close of that scene, which is act one, scene two, uh, in which he, scene three, is that what you said? No, it's scene two. Scene two, scene two right. yeah. Um, in which he makes, he gives a speech, uh, a soliloquy. So he's alone on stage, which has very yeah. interesting content. And he makes the claim that he is merely acting the role of a prodigal mm. uh, so that nobody will expect anything out of him. And then someday he's going to shed this persona and come forth uh, out of like the blackness of his past as a shining sun, S-U-N and and S-O-N, right? There's a little pun there. Um, As a shining sun of England. And then and only then is he going to show his true worth as a king. Um, And that speech is extremely famous. Uh, There's a really, really famous line in it in which Prince Hal claims that uh, someday he is going to become the king and thus pay the debt I never promised, uh, which that goes to a very deep psychological question of the play, which is, what is the difference between the king and the man? How does somebody go from a dissolute young prodigal into becoming a worthy king? And what do you do with your troubled past, the fact that your father has usurped the throne? Mm. Uh, and and that's a very big question in the play, considering the medieval love of the divine right of kings. So there's all of these conflicts uh, and all of these paradoxes and all these contradictions and sufferings and glories that goes and uh, and and weight of expectation, both personal and vocational, uh, with kingship and manhood that kind of rest on the shoulders of this young prodigal son. Um, and uh, so that's our introduction to Prince Hal. And just by a few lines, this is what Shakespeare's genius, yeah. right? Just in a yeah. few lines and one speech, we get all of that about Prince Hal by act one, scene two. It's brilliant. Heidi, do we know why Hal is playing the prodigal? Do we he have makes, clues about 
Yeah. I mean, he makes the claim that he's faking it uh, Mm -hmm. and that he's going to someday come out of it and become a great king, which, of course, is true. Um, But we don't we don't know if he's fooling himself. Right. There's so much so much written about Prince Hal and this conflict in his soul um, over the centuries. Uh, We we do know that he um, he has a legitimate psychological reason, right? He's got his father who's constantly disappointed in him, his father Mm -hmm. who's committed a great crime by medieval Mm -hmm. standards, stolen the throne. And in that case, Henry is going to become the throne, become the king on a stolen throne, which seems to bother him because he does have kind of this uh, clear core of virtue. Um, And, uh, he, he's wrestling through that. Like, what does it mean to be the son of a man who took the throne, who deposed a king yeah. and murdered him, right? Yeah. And and everybody knows that. And yet he still is going to become the king. And this is creating this deep conflict in him. Plus on the personal side, he has a father who's continually disappointed in him, wishes that another man was a son, straight up said that to his mm-hmm. own counselors. I wish this other kid was my son. That's a big yeah. deal, right? Yeah. Like nobody, oh, I just can't even imagine what that would do to a, to a boy to hear that becoming a man as he's becoming a man. Plus he's got a friend in Falstaff um, who, you know, one of the questions I'm sure you and I will discuss, maybe even ad nauseum is the question of the sincerity of Falstaff. Yeah. How, what is Falstaff his friend? Cause he loves and cares for him. Or does he just like being best friends with the heir to the throne who pays for all yeah. of their drunken nights? Right. Or is it a combination and, of and both? How gets elevated. Doesn't that mean that Falstaff is going to also rise with him? Like, isn't that part of what Falstaff might be kind of hoping for? Exactly. Right. Um, so there's, there's, there's legitimate psychological and societal pressure on Hal that plus his own strategic mind that is thinking ahead. Nobody knows yeah. he is because he hides it from everyone. Uh, but he does have this strategic position that he's trying to entrench. Um, whether or not he's fooling himself that that's his real reason for being a prodigal, we don't know, right? That's yeah. part of the interpretive question of the play. Yeah. That's really well done. It's really well done. So yeah, one of the main interpretive questions of the play is what is the motive behind how kind of playing the playboy? Mm-hmm. Can you tell us anything more about hot staff, hot staff, hot spur? Hot, we hot, learn kind of works. <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. Um, we know by scene one that he's a great military man. Um, what else do we gather from him or about him in this act? Oh man, he's he's a hothead, right? He's called Hot Spur. Um, of course, when he would ride into battle, he would wear spurs on his horse, and so hot was a synonym for anger at the time, just like it is now. Um, and so he's hot-headed, and he would spur his horse to action, sometimes pre- precipitously. Right? Yeah. He is a man of action. Uh, he's a, a man very driven by uh, his. Uh, by by his desire for honor and his desire to prove himself and show himself worthy. Um, and so, you know, Hotspur, again, what I love about this, crazy about this play, what I love about it is there's multiple interpretations of each character. Um, yeah. You have like pro-Prince Hal and anti-Prince Hal. You've got pro-Falstaff, anti-Hal. 
uh, false staff. Same here with Hotspur. You know, to some people, he is this man of action that's like so attractive. Like he's always going after what he wants. He's always winning battles. He's like a true chivalrous knight, right? Um, mm. But at the same time, he has no moderation in anything. Everything he feels, he feels 100%. If he's angry, like the king makes him angry in this act um, because the king, and, and, and the king actually treats him quite dishonorably. Um, mm. Hotspur has uh, taken prisoners in this battle and it was commonplace courtesy for kings and to allow uh, a conquering hero like Hotspur to keep a certain amount of prisoners and he would take some for himself because these prisoners were of high rank and would be ransomed, right? And so as a favor to his nobles, the kings would generally say, you keep some of the prisoners and I'll take some and you divide the spoils. And then each of them would get the money from the ransom and the glory from the capture. Uh, But the king, and, and that's what Hotspur is expecting because he's in great favor with the king and he knows that. But instead, uh, Henry IV tells him, I want all the prisoners. Uh, and Hotspur gets angry at him for that. And then he says, well, if I give you the prisoners, will you at least allow me to ransom my brother-in-law Mortimer, who you referred to earlier? You told us a little about him earlier. Yeah. And Mortimer had been captured uh, in the other battle. Um, and uh, the king refuses that against request the Welsh. too. And against the Welsh. Yeah. He was taken by Gwinder or whatever. Um, and the reason why the king refuses that is personal and professional in a sense. I guess if you can say a king is a profession. Um, but the reason is because Mortimer is the actual legitimate heir to the throne. And yeah. so the king, if if the king allows him to be ransomed and freed, uh, then he has a rival. And so the king freaks out and is like, no, 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 no. Right. And then he looks suspiciously at, um, at Hotspur from that moment on. Um, and Hotspur, instead of saying, what can I do to curry back favor with the king? I've got to let this insult go. And I've got to be you know, diplomatic and figure this out for the sake of my family who supported Henry's, de- uh, excuse me, Richard's deposition and helped put Henry the Fourth on the throne. Instead of that, Hotspur goes off hacked, half cocked because he's a hothead, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so there's going to be a very uh, a growing tension between, as we see it in Act One, Scene One, a growing tension between these two young men, uh, Prince Hal and Hotspur, culminating in, of course, a battle. But there's they're they're pitted against each other from the very beginning, not only by uh, political position and rivalry, uh, but also by disposition, right? Because yeah. you have Hotspur as kind of being this excess um, on the side of wrath and um, in chivalry. Um, if you can have an excess of chivalry, we can debate that. And on right. the other hand, we have Prince Hal, the prodigal, like the on opposite. the excess yeah. of pleasure, right? So they're yeah, yeah, opposites yeah. pitted against each other and there's no moderation in any of them in between them that we can see at first. So, right. Um, Right from the beginning of this play, we know that the solution to the primary problem, which is the conflict between Hotspur and the reigning king, Henry IV, the solution is the maturation of the son of Henry IV, who is Prince Hal, eventually Henry V. So I think from the get-go, there's this is a... Um, this is a story being told that has very significant kind of moral implications. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, we're always careful on this show and on close reads to not make 
the literature that we read, that we listen to, into morality tales and just kind of extract moral principles from it. Nevertheless, Shakespeare is telling us tales about um, the failures of ambition in Macbeth and um, maybe like the failures of indecision in Henry the Fourth, Part One. We, you know, we want how to act, to grow up, and to act. And we're going to do something a little bit different on this show. We're just going to we we try our best on the plays, the thing to not give away the plot in its entirety. We just kind of go act by act. We do plot summaries, but we try to not give away the conclusion of the play unless it's such a well-known play like Romeo and Juliet. Everybody knows Romeo and Juliet die in each other's arms at the end. Um, Unless it's something like Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet, we try to not give away the end. However, we're going to do that on this play. Um, Heidi, why are we going to do it on this play? Why are we going to kind of give away the end? Yeah, uh, we talked about this off the air, Tim, and I'm I'm glad we're doing this because this play, I, I think that out of the masterwork of one of the greatest geniuses in history, Shakespeare, this particular play uses the technique of foreshadowing in a way that I've I, I think is unparalleled in literary history. Like, I know that's a really big statement, um, but it, I think it's true. Like I've never read any better foreshadowing in the English mm. language than in mm. Henry the fourth part one. Have you, I mean, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but it's so good. It's so powerful. I'd have to think on that. Yeah. I know I hear that, but yeah. it's the way that he sets us up. Um, especially with, uh, especially in the interactions between Prince Hal and Falstaff um, is so amazing. And so I don't want our readers, our listeners to miss that. And so we we just talked about, let's just say what happens because then we can point out the genius of Shakespeare as he does these foreshadowing techniques in the play. And you're a believer that if people actually know what's going to happen they're going to enjoy it, it more. Yeah, it makes it better, yeah. and I think that's how great stories are. If you need to be surprised in a plot, it's it's not going to be an enduring story, right? It might be an entertaining one or an interesting one, or you might love it. But you know, if you if you know, for example, yeah. if you're reading the Iliad and you know when you're on uh, in book six when Hector is standing on the wall with Andromache and they're holding their baby son and talking about how he must leave them and go off to war and she's begging him to stay and he says, "Don't worry, I'll be back, my love." And he kisses his son. If you know that by the end of this of the tale that in book twenty and book twenty two or twenty three, uh, yeah. 22 and book 22 that Astyanx, the little boy is going to be thrown off the burning walls of Troy, Mm. falling into crying into the flames. And then Andromache is going to be taken captive and enslaved uh, to Achilles son uh, who killed and Achilles was the one who killed her husband. If you know that that adds a whole other level to that to that scene on the wall, which is touching anyway, right? That scene's so touching. It's so moving. But if you know how it's going to end, you're like weeping, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how this play is. There's, um, 
There's, there's this foreshadowing that happens that then if you know, if you know that Prince Hal is going to reject Falstaff, publicly shame him in Henry IV Part Two, man, that changes the way that you read this play. Right. And it makes it so, that makes the pathos, it makes the emotion and the weight of the decisions on all of these characters that impact not only themselves, but all of England and Europe. If you know that, it changes the way you read it. It puts more weight, more pathos, more emotion uh, into every scene. Heidi, I want to transition us to talking about our third major character, Falstaff. Um, I, I think part of the reason why Falstaff has stuck with us for so long is that he's not, he's very, very funny. He's a buffoon. But as you said earlier, there's more to him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's vain. He spends half the time um, of the half his lines in the play are boasting. And, you know, the other half of his lines in the play are about drinking mead or sack. And almost all of his time is spent at the Boar's Head Inn. He's surrounded by criminals the money that he has has been stolen or borrowed and he's deeply in debt. And Prince Hal, the very opening of the scene, act one, scene two, is Hal kind of being disgusted with him for oversleeping and then kind of falling into a reverie with Falstaff that is just delightful and hilarious. In fact, Heidi, I want to play a little bit of audio of the exchange between uh, Falstaff and Hal. This takes place in Act 1, Scene 2 in the Boar's Head Inn. Let's listen. (laughs) Now, Hal, what time of day is it like? Thou art so fat-witted with drinking of old sack and unbuttoning thee after supper and sleeping upon benches after noon that thou hast forgotten to demand that truly which thou wouldst truly know. What a devil hast thou to do with the time of the day? Unless hours were cups of sack, and minutes capons, and clocks the tongues of boards, and dials the signs of leaping houses, and the blessed sun himself a fair hot wench in flame-coloured taffeta, I see no reason why thou shouldst be so superfluous to demand the time of the day. Indeed, you come near me now, how? For we that take purses go by the moon and the seven stars, and not by Phoebus, he that wandering nights to fare. And I prithee, sweet wag, when thou art a king, as God save thy grace, majesty, I should say, for grace thou wilt have none. What, none? No, by my troth, not so much as will serve to be prologue to an egg and butter. Well, how then? Come, roundly, roundly. Marry then, sweet wag. When thou art king, let not us that are squires of the knight's body be called thieves of the day's beauty. Let us be Diana's foresters, gentlemen of the shade, minions of the moon, and let men say we be men of good government, being governed as the sea is by our noble and chaste mistress, the moon, under whose countenance we steal. Being governed as the sea is by our noble and chaste mistress, the moon, under whose countenance we steal. So says Falstaff to Prince Hal. 
Um, Heidi, why swear by the moon? There's so many things to swear by. Why by the moon? I'm laughing because I really want to start quoting Romeo and Juliet right now. The moon, swear not by the moon, the inconstant moon. The inconstant moon. (laughs) It's perfect. It's perfect. Um, So as you said, I mean, the moon waxes and wanes um, and uh, the moon is uh, always considered like that, you know, that always feminine, interestingly enough, the, the, the mistress of the night. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so a couple of literary associations with the moon, as you pointed out, the inconstancy of it, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Um, Also connected to it is the idea of lunacy, Um, lunar, right. That's where we get this idea of craziness. Um, Mm -hmm. And so if you're under the influence of the moon, you're going to make disordered decisions. Um, And then there's also this association with kind of the uh, degeneracy of the life of the night. Um, and, uh, and so for a false staff to make a claim of being led by the moon in medieval late in, in late medieval times, this would have been, that's a big claim because back, back then they actually believed that heavenly bodies would govern and influence human decisions and human affairs. Um, and so if you choose to be a person of the night rather than of the day, then you're going to be governed by lunacy inconstancy, and degeneracy. And that's what we get from Falstaff Mm -hmm. and that's his influence upon Hal. Um, And what we need from Hal, what Henry the fourth wants from Hal is kind of a step into manhood or constancy being someone who can be trusted, being someone who his people can count on. And that's not who we have at the beginning of this play. And it's the reason for Henry King, Henry the fourth's, dismay at the state of his son, you know, him being jealous that Hotspur is not his son. Um, So the ball is on the tee, you know, already by scene two of this act. I want to introduce to our listeners one other concept. And then I want to ask you one question uh, as we close, Heidi. I'm going to ask the question now, and then I'm going to introduce the concept and come back to the question at the end. So the question that I want to ask you is this. It's actually a multiple choice question. Ooh. Sir John no Falstaff. No nuance allowed on that. Okay. No nuance allowed. <laughs> Sir John Falstaff is one of Shakespeare's greatest, A, comic figures, B, historical figures, C, romantic figures, or D, tragic figures. Oh, I mean. Comic, historical, romantic, or tragic. That's what I I want to come back to. I have to go with A for sure. You have to go with A? Okay. uh, Yeah, but you can make a case for D in a hot minute. But I think it's, I think A. (laughs) I'm going to come back to it. I'm going to give my answer after we talk about, yeah, if I'm going to withhold. give any nuance, I'm going to be I mad. will not. I will not. Okay. Well, no, maybe I will. You can make, you can, you can tell me if I'm like giving too much nuance. I want to introduce one other thing just for our listeners to be paying attention to as they either view this play or read this play. The question is about honor. Everybody in this play has got something to say about the concept of honor. So the thing that I want people to listen to is like, what exactly is it? 
And then I want to know, does the play think it's a good or a bad thing? Now, that might seem like that, that second question, does the play think it's a good or a bad thing? We tend to use the word honor as a term of praise. He's honorable. She acted honorably. But there's also kind of this dark side to honor, which is we see it actually, I think, in another book that we're reading in a character of Karenin, the husband of Anna Karenina. He is so concerned with his own honor that he kind of like fails in his affection for Anna. He's so kind of outward facing. He's so busy managing his reputation that he doesn't like pay attention to his first call, which is to love his wife, you know? So I think that this play is asking the question about honor. And I just want to say one other thing about that. We, the United States is not an honor bound culture. I think we used to be an honor bound culture, especially the part of the world that I'm from. The South used to be a much, much more honor bound culture. And so one's standing in society was based on a series of kind of like intricate um, and nuanced honor codes about the roles that we inhabited, that human beings inhabited, and the rules that we kind of followed. And one of the worst things that you could do to someone is to dishonor them, because to dishonor them is not just to kind of like disrespect them as an individual, but it's to actually threaten their standing within the honor system that existed, which is part of the reason why you get these kind of like titanic responses to being dishonored, which include, I challenge thee to a duel, right? It's because the stakes are so incredibly high. So the stakes are high also in England in 1400 when this play is taking place. And I just want to touch base, you know, in each successive act with on this question of, okay, what exactly is honor? And second, does Shakespeare think in, in the confines of this play, does Shakespeare think that honor is a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, so that's just a setup. Okay, now, Prince Hal, excuse me, excuse me, Falstaff, is he one of Shakespeare's greatest comic figures, historical figures? romantic figures or tragic figures. Heidi, you said D or you said I A, said comic a, figures. Yep. But you can make yep. a case for D, but I said A. I'm going to make a case for C, romantic Go figures. On. And I, so it, I'm going to now kind of like define what I think the question means by romantic. I don't mean that he's a great ladies man, though. I mean, like he talks he about women he all the time. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> and foreshadowing, this is worth mentioning. Um, Falstaff dies in one of Shakespeare's plays. We're not going to mention which one. He apparently was so popular with the queen, Elizabeth, that the rumor is that she sent word to Shakespeare that she wanted Falstaff brought back to life. And Heidi, do you remember what play uh, Falstaff is resurrected for? I want to say... Yes, it's a comedy. Yep. Merry Wives of Windsor. Merry Wives of Windsor. You are a yeah. Shakespeare aficionado. I really love Shakespeare. I, yes, and I, 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 I don't like Falstaff. I'll be honest, <laughs> but um, 
I acknowledge that he is bigger than any play he's ever been in. And he is a show stealer. Yeah. Um, And the maybe, maybe Shakespeare's greatest character ever. Maybe. Hamlet and Falstaff. What kind of character? Right. Is he? Right. Right. right? Because like we said, he's like always bragging. He's always drinking, but there's something in him that's profoundly sad. Broken and sad. And it's clear from the very first time, like it's clear from his very first word, that very first scene. It's, and that I think to go back to how you, you connected him with Ignatius J. Riley. Yeah. I think that's their greatest connection. One, they're both fat and led by their appetites. Like that's like entirely appetite driven men, Um, which I think even that has like maybe that's it. Like to be an appetite driven person is inherently tragic. Mm. And, and so even, but Falstaff is like jolly and bigger than life and he's cracking jokes and he's overtly likable to certain types of people. Ignatius J. Riley's not, he's mm. intentionally not a likable person in the Confederacy of Dunces. And so in that way, they're not the same. We're not trying to say they're exactly the same people is what I'm, I'm saying to our listeners. Right. But there is like this idea of like this bigger than life person, not only physically, but, but um, I don't, I don't know, psychologically, like his presence is felt and takes over yeah. the room. And then his body kind of mirrors that. Um, yeah. And uh, and then there's this inherent tragedy to it. But go on about the romantic. Like, make your case for that. I'd like to be convinced. I think that he... So the romantics of the 19th century, I mean, especially the Italians and the Germans and the English, they're all kind of preoccupied with living life to its absolute fullest. You know, like sucking the marrow out of the bones. And that includes a kind of darkness. Like if you look at the romantic paintings, so many of them are kind of consumed with these dark images, with with like terrifying dreams, El Greco and like he does, you know, lineups where people are being executed. And I think there's something about Falstaff that makes me think, he is embracing more than just the comedy of life. I think he wants to embrace all of life, but he has become something like that friend that you had in college. And I wonder if you had this friend. I had this friend. We all had this friend. He is like the absolute most fun to have at a party. If you're ever going out, he's got to be included. He's got to be center stage. He makes everybody laugh. He's the one who got the tattoo of like the sailor girl on his shoulder. (laughs) That says mom. (laughs) That says mom on it. And he got it because it was ironic and he's not afraid to do that. And he's not afraid to actually take off his shirt at like the you know, like the baby pool filled with beer and dive right in and show off. He like, this is who he is. But what's like, like, what's really sad. And this is, I'm being genuine here. What's sad is that everybody invites him around in college and in your early twenties, but you kind of know he's locked into being this character. He's more than this, 
But in order to maintain his friendships, he has to stay in that mode. And it's kind of like it's keeping him from getting a better job. It's keeping him a little bit out of money. It's keeping him from, you know, getting a girlfriend. Like all of these things become part of playing this role that he's so good at, that he enjoys at, but he's more than that. And so for me, Falstaff is a romantic character because he is locked into playing the buffoon. That's what Hal wants from him. Falstaff wants to be more than that. He wants to be more than that for Hal, but the only way to really earn and keep Hal's affections is by being a a clown. And I think that's really like romantic, romantically tragic. I I just did the thing that I said I wasn't going to do, which is like I nuanced it to death. No, I asked. And I think you're making your case. I mean, even if he is a romantic figure in the capital R sense, we probably ought to say that would be an anachronism because that would have been hundreds of years before the romantics, right? But in that sense, that would just mean Shakespeare's ahead of his time. And of course, that is no surprise to anyone, right? Um, Right. Right. So and I think to defend that claim that he that that how excuse me that Falstaff was a romantic, one of the great romantic heroes for the romantics two hundred years later, is Hamlet. He's like the ultimate romantic hero. I missed, mm-hmm. I missed all the Falstaff talk. <laughs> yes, um, ladies and gentlemen, we would like to introduce to you Brandon LeBlanc. Brandon will be coming back for subsequent. Acts because Brandon also loves this play. Hey, Brandon, welcome to the show. And I would love to hear, we heard Heidi at the top of the show talk about how much she enjoys this play. Um, I'd love to hear just a little bit about why you like it so much. Yeah. Can I first say that it seems very Falstaffian that you're an hour late to the podcast? Right. Wait, am I really an hour late? Well played. Yes. (laughs) So... Please tell us what you love about the play. Excellent. I feel like I, um, I had a time zone issue here um, because like Falstaff. Um, like oh, Falstaff, you're central time. It's Both in bad. seven. It's too bad we're not at the end of the play when he comes in like super late. And, right. But I will take all the credit like, I, like he does. Um, I love the play. I'm a latecomer to the history plays. Uh, I think mm. I would never think to rival Heidi's love for the history plays. The only person in, that I know of in real life who might is my, is my wife, my lovely wife, um, who is as English as you can get. As I'll give her that. She's your wife. Um, yes. But I think the two of you, we could just have, you know, a whole weekend geeking out over history plays. Um, Sounds amazing. I, I think was assigned Henry V in high school. I remember watching the, the Kenneth Branagh version. And I, that was the, but I don't think I read it. And that was the extent of my, um, of my experience until a few years ago when my wife said, I really, really want to watch the hollow crown series. I've heard so many good things. And I can't remember if she was about to teach one of those plays or what, but, um, and I think it's like nine episodes, right. Over the two seasons. Um, mm. and I think we finished it in like 10 days, basically. <laughs> it's a lot of Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. He's so dreamy. Yeah. I love him. So, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the Henry ad. And then, um, and then the second season picks up with, with Richard the third and it's, you know, you get the, the Cumberbuck. Uh, and I just loved it. I loved it. And I think the way they handle false off actually in, in, in the plays opens him up to some more interesting interpretation. So 
Um, Brandon, I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked Heidi, and I'm not going to tell you what her answer was or what my answer was. Oh, this worked out really well, but I was super late. That's right. Um, Sir John Falstaff is one of Shakespeare's greatest. A, comic figures. B, historical figures. C, romantic figures. D, tragic figures. Mm. Comic, historical, romantic, or tragic? I don't have any knowledge of him historically, so I, I won't go with that one. Um, I think ultimately tragic. Okay. I think you don't see it. You won't see it in part one. You, you won't see the fruition of that in part one until, uh, but you'll, it kind of, it comes. We already said spoilers are okay. fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Makes the play better. Okay. So uh, he is definitely comic. I mean, he is one of the funniest characters. If you're just talking about how funny he is, in that sense of comedy, he's very com- comedic. I think I came in on the tail of you defending something about him being a romantic character, yeah. which I'm, I'm going to have to go back and listen to the podcast now, like everybody else, <laughs> um, because and I'm actually intrigued by it. But honestly, watching that Hollow Crown version brought it out a lot for me, is that in the, I think it's in this first act, right? The the scene where they both take turns pretending to be the king. Or no, maybe that's later. Um, yeah, that's in act two. And act it's, two, act I two. think, one of the greatest scenes in Shakespeare. And I so, can't wait to talk about that with y'all. Yeah, I think that's one of those, um, I just got done recently listening to your Tame to the Shrew um, episodes, which I was sitting in the room for half of those while Matt was talking. Um, and are fantastic. But y'all get into a lot of discussion about how much it changes based on who you cast and how the actor and director choose to, to say the lines to, to play the part. And I think that scene can just be a clear mocking of the King and, and then, and then, you know, false stuff, somewhat teasing Hal and when he's, when he's playing Hal, but in the hollow crown, he, he delivers those lines. So earnestly at times, the parts where he's talking about himself, like he's in third person, to, he's pretending to be Hal talking about false stuff as false half and there's just he really wants to be seen as loyal and and worthy and i think he has so long lived a life of um feeling the belly <laughs> that yeah. he can't get there and that ultimately he comes to a tragic end with that but only after trying several times throughout yeah so i think it's a little bit tragic in the end, but I love him. There are, th- there are three of us. I, when, I, when I read those um, different options, comic, historical, romantic, or tragic, I thought to myself, basically what you said, Brandon, like the only one it couldn't be is historical. I could just, you know, that, let's just kind of take that one off the board. Of the remaining choices, each of us picked a different one, which might be a testament to kind of like, for me, how intriguing this character is. So next week we will record act two. Remember the kind of things to be looking out for, dear listeners, that concept of honor. Is it a good or a bad thing? What is, why is Prince Hal playing the role of this this character who just kind of like won't grow up. Why is he playing the prodigal? That's something else that maybe we can learn a little bit more from. And keep your eye on this rising conflict between Hal and Hotspur, which um, is going to take us toward the resolution of the entire play. Is Hal going to mature, become mature enough that he can actually kind of like take on Hotspur as a rival for his father's affections and 
can how mature enough to be like actually be on the throne. Those are the things to look forward to. I want to thank Heidi and Brandon for joining me. And I want to thank everyone else for listening. Please join us next week for act two of Henry the fourth part one. And until then we wish you as always happy reading. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.